This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about the latest developments between Ukraine and Russia. Russia and Ukraine have been in conflict and a hot peace in Crimea in eastern Ukraine ever since 2014, and they recently clashed at sea, leaving many wary about rising tensions between the two countries. To join me in this discussion are U.S. Commander Tony Chavez, who has been deployed to every U.S. Navy fleet around the world, and most recently served in the Mediterranean as the Sixth Fleet Air Operations Director. Welcome, Tony. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Brian. Good to be here. Also with us is Evo Dalder, president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and former U.S. ambassador to NATO. Welcome back to Deep Dish, Evo. Great to be back. You know, the outline of what happened, um, as as people are probably familiar with, is on November 25th, uh, near the Kursk Strait, Russian warships fired on, rammed, and ultimately seized three Ukrainian vessels and 24 sailors that were on those boats, and they continue to hold uh, both the boats and the sailors. Now, Tony, I want to start with you, um, and I want you to lay out just a, in words, a map of the region so that people have a sense of geography, because it's really important. For those of you who are listening that have access to an internet connection, you can go to the Deep Dish on Global Affairs Facebook site, and we have a physical map you can look at uh, there. Please don't if you're driving. But for those who can't take a look at that map, Tony, lay out what this region looks like. What are the important uh, features of this geography? Sure, Brian. Uh, Russia and Ukraine, what they do is they share a basically uh, a shared bay, uh, which is the Sea of Azov. And uh, it, there is the Kerch Strait that separates the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea. So if you can imagine uh, you being on a boat in the Sea of Azov in the bay, uh, you would go through the strait and you would open up into the Black Sea there. And then further down, you have the uh, Turkish Straits beyond the Black Sea that opens up to the Aegean Sea and onto the Mediterranean. So those are the three levels of uh, seas that are there from going from Russia and south into the Mediterranean. And why are these waterways important for each Russia and Ukraine? Uh, All right. So Russia sees uh, these three bodies of water almost like a uh, three-tiered uh, defense there for them. Uh, if you can imagine the Sea of Vaz, the Black Sea, and the Mediterranean Sea as a three-tier defense, Russia would be uh, uh, like to move the opposition to the outer tier, the Mediterranean, which is probably really unlikely. What they'd like to do is uh, take control uh, of the Sea of Azov, and which is the end, the Black Sea, which are the inner two tiers of that defense. Uh, if Russia considers the Mediterranean and the Middle East as backyard, uh, the Black Sea is the front porch, and the Sea of Azov is the front door. So it really makes them nervous when the U.S. and NATO is operating that close. Evo, I want to turn to you. And in, inside of that geography, there is also a context in which this conflict is taking place, which is the conflict between Russia and Ukraine that's been going on since 2014. What is Vladimir Putin trying to achieve by this latest provocation, this latest incident at sea? Well, let me, let me put the, uh, part of the geography back into here as well. So the Sea of Azov is in fact uh, connected to both Ukraine and to Russia. So they both have uh, ports uh, that are important in that sea. And the Strait of Kerch separates Ukraine from Russia, except that the Ukrainian part has been seized uh, 
by Russia in 2014 because that's called Crimea. It's the, pl- the place where the conflict between the two sides in 2014 started when we had little green men uh, appearing in Crimea uh, and taking over and control of this, this part of Ukrainian territory and indeed annexing it uh, to Russia. And so for Russia's view right now, the strait cuts through Russian territory, Crimea, which it claims to be Russia and Russian territory. And there's also now a bridge that they have built between the two, which is the only direct link from Russian land to Crimea at the moment. So that's an important geographical uh, um, situation. What's, what's, what has been happening since 2014, when the Russians annexed Crimea and started a major military uh, operation by uh, helping opposition forces and arming them f- and indeed directing them with their own with their own capabilities to take major parts of eastern uh, Ukraine is that the Russians are trying to destabilize Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine in, in 2013 and 2014 had a big internal debate about whether or not it should align more closely with the European Union. Uh, and the Russians wanted to prevent that from happening. And one way you prevent that from happening is to start a war. They did it with Georgia in 2008. They've done it in Transnistria uh, in, uh, back uh, at the beginning of the, uh, the Soviet Union uh, collapsing and Russia uh, becoming independent. It's part and parcel of how they, uh, they operate. The destabilization of eastern Ukraine, the seizure of Crimea is part and parcel of an attempt to make sure that Ukraine stays within the Russian sphere of influence. And this latest incident really is designed to push a little further. Uh, it was getting a little comfortable for the Ukrainians. There's a presidential election coming up in May, in March uh, of next year. And uh, as Russia does, they probe and probe and they wait what the response is. And if the response is not big enough, they'll probe a little more. And I think we're in the beginning of that stage. Tony, you as a sailor understand freedom of navigation and all. Did the Ukrainian boats that were um, set on by the Russians, did they have the right to be in these waters doing what they were doing in these waters? Or did Russia have, was there some sort of provocation that created a justification for Russia to, to seize these boats? They had the right to be there. Uh, the, no matter how you look at it, whether you do the 2003 agreement that was signed by Russia and Ukraine uh, that states that uh, the Sea of Azov and the Kerch Strait are both uh, internal waters for both those countries. In addition to that, um, any ship, it's, it states in there that any ship that flies the flag of either Russia or Ukraine has the freedom of, of navigation through both the Kerch Strait and the Sea of Azov. So they could go through here without any trouble because these are waters that are controlled by both Russia and and Ukraine. Absolutely. And and even if you took uh, United Nations uh, Convention Law of the Sea, so even if you take Article 38, which allows you trans, uh, right of transit passage, uh, they uh, Ukraine should have been able to go through there without any provocation because if you view, uh, you can either view it as the two agreements that uh, Russia and uh, Ukraine signed, or you can view it as, as UNCLOS, which uh, if you could imagine, there's a high seas on either side, and the the Kerch Strait, and you should be a, a state can go from a high seas area through a strait and to another high seas area without any issues. So, Evo, um, in terms of the escalation of this conflict, for those folks who have had a chance to look at the map, what you can see is that. If the Russians control this strait, they essentially cut off a whole part of eastern Ukraine from the ability to to have sea access there, including an an important 
support. Why is that important? Two things are happening. One is Russia is trying to make de, uh, de jure what is already the case de facto. It's control of Crimea. And because it, 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 it now thinks it owns both sides of the, of the strait, it should be able to control the strait itself. There are reasons for under international law. One, because its seizure of Crimea is illegal. Uh, two, uh, as Tony said, under uh, naval and bilateral treaties and, and the UN, uh, the, the UN uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, this is illegal as well. But they're trying to erase history and reality. And part of the history and reality they're trying to erase is, is more of eastern Ukraine. There's a pole, there's a very important port, uh, particularly for steel and other exports in Mariupol, which is in the Sea of Azov. And if they can control access by Ukrainian ships or indeed any other ship uh, to that port, they control the ability of Ukraine to export and import through that port, uh, which would make it much more difficult to, uh, to export and import because you'd have to move stuff to, uh, f to the other side of Crimea in order to get directly into the, into the Black Sea. So it's part of an economic, uh, political, and potentially a military escalation. Mariupol was very much in the eye of the Russians back in August of 2014 when there was a major escalation by the Russians, including with armed uh, 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 columns of tanks uh, that the Russians were flushing into uh, eastern Ukraine. There was a big fight uh, at the time uh, that stopped uh, the advance, but it was clear that if this advance had not been stopped, they would have seized Mariupol. Because what do the Russians want? They want direct link between Russia and Crimea over land. Not just a bridge that is now over the Kerch Strait, but direct land. They want control of that. Tony, so this is an escalating naval situation. In military terms, can Ukraine challenge the Russian Navy? Is that a fair fight? Can they respond militarily in a way that can back the Russians off? I, I think the short answer is, is no. And, and I'll explain a, a little, little more with that. Uh, when Crimea was annexed, as previously mentioned by Evo, uh, the ships that were in port or weren't able to escape were usurped by Russia. So it took most of the Navy that Ukraine had. In addition to that, uh, it probably cut its uh, sailors in half, probably about, I think it's 6,500 right now that are serving. Pre prior to that, it was over 16,000. Uh, 16, so right now we're at 6,500 6, uh, sailors. Uh, we did provide a couple of uh, Coast Guard cutters recently, but they're armed with probably 25 millimeter guns and 50 cal guns, uh, not enough to to uh, defend against Russia. And regardless, even if they did have those ships that were there in port, which is two of the newest corvettes were kept by Russia uh, after they usurped those naval vessels, uh, there's no way they could defend against the naval forces of Russia or even the air coverage that Russia has in the area. So if Ukraine can't handle this situation on its own, then all the more important is what is the international response to this incident? Eva, what have the major responses been to date? A lot of rhetoric. Even that, not very good rhetoric. A lot of countries have expressed that they're concerned. Some are deeply concerned. Some are very concerned. Some are really seriously concerned. Not uh, things that Vladimir not, Putin is usually deterred by deep exactly. concern. And uh, we, uh, uh, you know, the president uh, of the United States, of course, canceled his one-on-one uh, -on -one with uh, Vladimir Putin in Argentina at the G20 summit, citing uh, the seizure of, uh, of the ships, the three, the three boats, and the 24 sailors, three of whom are wounded and all of whom are in prison in Moscow. 
Uh, they've been pull, pulled back to Moscow uh, uh, as a reason. But so far, uh, I think the best you can say is we're starting a debate uh, in Germany about Nord Stream 2, which is a big gas pipeline uh, that is uh, circumventing uh, Ukraine and Poland to ship gas directly through the Balt from Russia directly through the Baltic Sea into Germany and then into Austria, and the, 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 that that gas pipeline is designed to prevent Ukraine from getting uh, uh, transit fees for gas that is being pumped right now through pipelines that run through Ukraine. So there's now a debate about maybe that is not such a good idea to have this pipeline. That would actually be a very serious decision on the part of uh, the Germans if they were to cut it off. Uh, there's been very little, uh, frankly, I don't have seen very, uh, any debate, certainly not on official levels, about any military action uh, on the part of NATO or the United States, whether uh, to put ships closer into, uh, into uh, the Black Sea. There is a, there is a NATO military, SNMG, the... Uh, the Snake of Two or Snake of right, One. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the standard, standard NATO, standard NATO uh, maritime group yes. uh, is right now in the Black Sea. Uh, they could go closer to this, uh, uh, this part of where the, where the incident took place. Uh, there's been no talk about sanctions. Uh, should we have more sanctions? Should there be more pressure? Uh, what we have is very serious concerns on the part of our allies. Frankly, I don't think that's enough um, because this is very much designed to see what the reaction was. And if the reaction is weak, we'll see more. That's Putin uh, uh, modus operandi. It's the way he deals with these things. He pushes, he pokes, he, he provokes and sees what the reaction is, and then he moves forward. Yeah, we're calling that the, the gray zone of operation where, where they provoke just, a bit, just enough to stay under conventional uh, warfare where we won't we re react, and they're measuring how much every time they, they provoke us, they're going to see what our reaction is, and uh, and then they'll either back up or they'll continue pushing, they, they, and then they continue making those new norms, those new lines that keep moving forward. So, Tony, are there things that the U.S. could do with its naval forces? I, you're in Chicago, so you're not privy to any of the planning sure. of this. But um, you've seen situations like this before. Are there things that we could do with our ships that could send a strong signal? Sure. I, I imagine that the uh, planners there in Sixth Fleet are, are debating uh, how, to, how to do this or how to react. And uh, I know that U.S. Sixth Fleet doesn't have a continuous presence uh, in the Black Sea. But since uh, the annexation of Crimea. We have increased the presence there. Uh, we are in Crimea, I mean, I'm sorry, in the Black Sea, uh, probably about 125 days out of the year throughout the year, these different vessels go out there. And prior to, to uh, this escalation, we would just go out to the Black Sea and conduct exercises. But now we have increased it not only to conduct the exercises out there, but also to uh, provide basically patrol of the Black Sea under the um, Atlantic Resolve, uh, which is basically the dedication to NATO's combined efforts in the Black Sea. Uh, and so I believe that there will be an increase in, in uh, vessels there. However, this will be under uh, multi, uh, multilateral operations and exercises. And what does that mean? Why is that important? Uh, 
Well, it's better to, to do thing, practice them in a controlled environment prior to getting there if, if, if you, and you're in the act of war, right? So you want to get out there, make sure that interoperability is working well with other partners, and you all know what, what uh, communications you're using, what tactics you're using, and we share those with Romania and Bulgaria. And, and recently, we were out there doing amphibious operations, anti-submarine warfare operations, uh, anti-mine operations, and all this goes to make sure that we're practicing it prior to uh, escalation. Tony, I, I've seen some people suggest uh, that one possibility could be that the Ukrainians invite the U.S. or NATO uh, to do a port visit in Mariupol, uh, their, uh, their port, which would mean you'd have to go through the Strait of Kerch and into the Sea of Azov. Is that something that's possible? Well, we, we talked about it earlier. If you view it under UNCLOS, it's one high C to another high C, and technically it, it's legal, but because uh, Ukraine and Russia have signed those agreements, it's probably illegal, and, and really, maybe not illegal, but it would be hurting Ukraine as a signatory there, and it would give Russia that ability to kind of uh, poke more at, uh, at Ukraine if we break those treaties, or if Ukraine breaks those treaties. So under that 2003 agreement, if, it, if you want to stay with that agreement, not only the Ukrainians, but also the Russians would have to agree to the passage. That's correct. Right. They, they both signed off that a, a third state coming into the uh, Sea of Azov have to be agreed upon by both countries. No, no, I, I, I think this, um, originally I thought, you know, maybe this is a way to, uh, to demonstrate that international waters are international waters, uh, but if you have to violate another international agreement, that's probably not the best way in which to uh, make the point that the Russians are violating international agreements. Which takes us to the point of where we are now and how we get out of this. Um, is there a path forward to de-escalate this conflict, particularly in a way that sends a strong message to Putin, as opposed to, oh, I got away with that, and as Tony, as you were talking about setting up that next line in the gray zone, advancing the gray zone. What, how should we think about this? What should be done in order to respond? So first, I think it's important to understand what is it that we're trying to achieve? And much of the, the, the rhetoric that we've seen so far, including by President Trump, has focused on November 25 and its aftermath. That is to say, the president, when he said, I'm not going to have the meeting with Putin, he said, until the sailors are freed and the boats are returned back to Ukraine. So that is basically to the status quo ante of November 24th. But if you look at this in a bigger strategic context, that this is yet another attempt by Putin to uh, provoke and poke and see how far he can get away with it. Getting back to the status quo ante may not be enough. The real message that needs to be sent is don't even try to cut off the Sea of Azov for Ukrainian uh, vessels or indeed to uh, take a, a, start to think about taking control of uh, the Ukrainian part uh, of the Sea of Azov. So at the very least, I think you have to start uh, putting pressure on the, on the Russians. One way is this debate about Nord Stream that's taking place within, uh, within uh, Germany. But the other is this is a time when you increase sanctions uh, on the Russians and say, uh, you know, this kind of behavior is going to cost you. Not that we want to get a return to the, to the previous status quo ante. What we want is to understand that if you do this, you're going to suffer big pain. Well, how do you do that? More sanctions, probably more self-defense capabilities for the Ukrainians, more training of the Ukrainian Navy, uh, and more cooperation with the Ukrainians to make sure that they have the capacity for self-defense. Tony, anything you would add to that formula? 
Well, um, no, I agree with the sanctions. I, I think that that's going to be the, the driving force that, that uh, helps us um, eliminate this issue, especially because it's going to hurt Russia, especially a, a flailing economy that Russia has. One of the things that I, I did want to add that just recently, yesterday, we, we, we conducted freedom of navigation operations. This is the in, U.S.? Yes, in uh, Peter the Great Bay in the Pacific, in the uh, Sea of Japan. So, I don't know if this is a tit for tat, you know, or I, I feel like maybe watering down Russia's capabilities of spreading their forces. But uh, we co- they claim the entire bay there, which is very similar, other than it doesn't get completely closed as it does in the uh, Sea of Azov. But uh, we conducted freedom of navigation operations not 24 hours ago against Russia uh, in the Sea of Japan. So that means we sent our boats, our that ships correct. into destroyer. their water in what into areas that they would have concern about. So avoiding some of the legal issues that we've been talking about in the Sea of Azov, um, but sending a message um, of our determination and resolve to maintain freedom of navigation in contested waters. That is correct. Um, yeah, No, I think it's, a, a, you know, international waters are international waters, and if you have a ship, you should be able to sail in it unless there's some agreement that prevents you from doing that. Uh, the other thing that uh, the Russians have done that people uh, have heartily noticed uh, they have now put a battery of S-400 air defense uh, missiles in Crimea, uh, which is not their territory. They don't own it, but they have uh, put those forces there, which suggests that they are now have a capacity to defend or try to defend the Strait of Kerch, not only with naval capability, but against uh, 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 Ukrainian aircraft uh, by shooting them down potentially, or at least threatening to shoot them down by deploying these very advanced uh, missile defense systems in, uh, in Crimea. So as we close, you've both described the situation as testing and probing by Vladimir Putin. For our listeners who want to continue to understand how this plays out, what should they pay closest attention to as this situation continues? What are the keys to know how this is going and what its bigger implications are going to be? It's probably going to be the obvious in the in, in the Kerch Strait if there's any conflicts there. But you can also see Russia um, trying to make moves to be a greater respected power, especially as it moves into the Mediterranean, grabbing a foothold in Syria, uh, ba- uh, arguably mobilizing equipment and personnel into that area, having that uh, anti-axis area denial that you talked about, Evo, as it moved an S-300 down there. So is it mobilizing uh, equipment into the Mediterranean to have a bigger uh, sphere of influence and uh, have some be- geopolitical influence down in that area? So I would look for Russia to move down um, you know, continue investing in, in, in Greece, in uh, Africa, and uh, in Israel, possibly even, uh, to have access. Because right now, uh, Russia, aside from the port of Tartus, it has nowhere else their, their ships can fuel uh, in the Mediterranean if they're going to deploy into that area. So part of a bigger strategy of watching what uh, Putin is doing, not only around Ukraine, but more broadly into the Mediterranean. That's correct. Here, Evo. So I think we're going to continue to see Putin do what he has been doing for uh, the past 15 years, which is probe, establish new facts on the ground, uh, get it accepted by uh, whoever is involved, usually us, uh, the United States and the West, and then probe again. And uh, that, that's part in the Mediterranean, what, uh, what Tony was talking about. It's happening in other parts of the world in the Middle East. Uh, they are a big power, uh, although a, uh, economically weak 
big power, and they, they want to establish new facts on the ground. Uh, in Ukraine, uh, I think, and I've thought from, since 2014, that their real aim here is first and foremost to establish a land bridge between Russia and Crimea, uh, not just a bridge that they have now created in the Strait of Kerch, but actually move uh, control by non-Ukrainian forces, opposition, whatever, uh, all the way through Mariupol. Uh, and I think the fact on the ground they have just established now is Ukraine no longer has access to the Sea of Azov. That's going to be the one to watch. Are the Ukrainians going to try to break it? Is there a way to see what is going to happen? But for now, they have said, you can't come through here uh, uh, anymore because we control this period, uh, this part of the world. That's in that part of the world is what I've been looking at. So Evo Dalder and Tony Chavez, thanks both for coming on to Deep Dish and really helping us get beyond what are kind of day-to-day events and seeing the bigger context and the bigger implications. Thank both of you for being here. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor. Tap on the subscribe button on your podcast app so that you can get each and every new episode as it's released. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would like today's episode, please take a moment, tap share, and send it to them as well. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs or the U.S. Navy. This episode of Deep Dish was produced by Evan Fazio. Our audio engineer is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.